0: All right, Genesis chapter 41, we're talking about God's providence. It's a very obvious theme in Genesis 37 to 50. You see it again and again. You see it all the way through the end of Genesis. Last week, or two weeks ago, rather, I share with you John Piper's definition of providence. He says providence is a wise and purposeful sovereignty. A wise and purposeful sovereignty is full of purpose. Uh, Piper writes this, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes God sees to it that it happens. God takes steps to make sure it happens. I'm talking about providence, and that is clearly illustrated in the life of Joseph, if it's illustrated anywhere in the Scripture. Um, last time we were together in Genesis 41, we noted God's providence exercised over the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, even to the extent of controlling his dreams, and that shows you the depths to which providence can reach. Egyptian religion. We we looked about. We studied Egyptian religion a little bit with its wise men and its magicians and all that. They didn't have an answer for their boss Pharaoh. They didn't have that. It's because Egyptian religion, like all religions, all false religions are bound to fail. Um, It's uh, any religion outside of Christ. As a matter of fact, is bound to fail. It's nothing more. Typical religion is nothing more than an outward form, an outward shell. Uh, There's no real. Uh, substance to it there's no there's certainly no godliness uh, most religions are designed to impress people with their outward show uh, in fact you know people think if something appears to be religious it must be valid they think that way um, the truth is the more outward display a religion shows typically uh, the uh, the usually the less authentic it is but God's providence not only had to do with that it also has to do with God's timing he knows when to move his people as we saw in uh, I think verse 14 of chapter 41, even when he moved Joseph at the right time from prison all the way to the palace. And as far as the Lord's is concerned, he's always on time. He's never late. Um, we also observed the last time we were together in Genesis 41 that uh, Joseph and his interpretation of uh, the dreams to Pharaoh, he gave God all the credit. He didn't take any credit at all. Uh, he made sure he received no credit. He again and again pushed away his own uh, his own uh, ability, and he said, it's not me, God did this. He gave credit to no one, anyone, but he didn't give credit to himself, he gave it all the all glory to God. So in verses 1 to 32, chapter 41, God's providence over Pharaoh's dreams. Secondly, tonight, God's providence over Joseph's exaltation. His providence over Joseph's exaltation in verses 33 to 49. And the account of his exaltation begins with Joseph's advice to Pharaoh. Again, I'm, I'm sorry the uh, notes didn't make it from point A to point B. They're ready to go, notes for the audience, but there's a transportation problem. <laughs> didn't make it here, kind of like the trucker strike. Didn't make it. Kind of stayed at my house. There's a strike at my house, so it didn't happen. Joseph's advice to Pharaoh, verses 33 to 36. Let's read those verses. Now let Pharaoh look for a man, Joseph says. This is after he interprets the dream. Uh, a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let him exact the fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt, and the seventh, and the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which, all, which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now, I'm pretty astounded by the boldness of Joseph here. Uh, He goes beyond what he's required to do. Pharaoh's request is that Joseph interpret the dream, and he does that, but now he takes it upon himself to outline a plan for the future (laughs) beyond the dream. Uh, He's asked to to interpret the dream, not, not on how to run the kingdom from here, but he goes ahead and gives his advice. He becomes Pharaoh's advisor. And look at these verses. They're rapid-fire instructions. They're they're using very direct language. This is talking to Pharaoh, respectful language, but direct. Verse 33, get the right guy to lead the project, Joseph says to Pharaoh. Um, Verse 34, get overseers to help the guy in charge carry out the job. This sounds like a a management course here. Uh, Store up a fifth of the produce. Verse 35, Gather the food during during the years of plenty, and then make sure you guard it. Joseph, obviously, a take-charge guy. I think this is probably, what we're seeing here, is probably how Joseph acted in Potiphar's house when he was the steward. Probably how he acted in the prison as a supervisor. And now he's the advisor to Pharaoh, maybe the self-appointed advisor at this point. I'm willing to bet that this advice that Joseph gives to Pharaoh is the best advice Pharaoh, this Pharaoh has ever received in his whole kingdom, because I think this, because this is the wisdom of God. Joseph is a man who knows God, and he has God's wisdom, and he's sharing this advice. This is the accumulation of, of an invaluable experience he's gained over 13 years. 13 years he's been in Egypt, 13 years of hardship, 13 years of learning leadership in Potiphar's house and in the prison. He's learning all this time. Those 13 years are not wasted. We think, sometimes think that we waste time with certain things in our life, but God's been teaching him and training him all this time to become a leader. Now, those 13 years in Potiphar's house in the prison, they may have seemed like wasted years. Uh, And maybe even Joseph thought that at times. We may even think that. Have you ever thought that about your own life? Well, this time in my life is not so great. We wonder, why are we in this uh, spiritually, what we consider to be a spiritually unprofitable time? I've thought that in my life at different times. Why is this happening? Nothing's happening, it seems like. But the Lord, understand this, the Lord uses all the mundane circumstances. Think about all the mundane circumstances you've been through. The Lord uses all that uh, to build our character in Christ, to teach us, to train us for whatever work He wants us to do. I'm not talking just about preachers. This is true of all God's people. He lays out a path for us, one that we may not choose, uh, but God knows what it takes for that, for each, to teach each, each one of us. He knows. As it turns out, the time spent in Potiphar's house and in prison are paying spiritual dividends at this point. Joseph has become the man God wants him to be, to lead the people. Uh, And he's he's been through God's seminary, God's personalized seminary with personalized circumstances, just ready made, tailor made for him. And now he's ready to graduate. He becomes, uh, he, he goes and stands before Pharaoh. Joseph tells Pharaoh in verse 33. Here's what you need to do, Pharaoh, in light of the fact that you're, there's going to be seven years of plenty and then a famine to follow, here's what you need to do. You need to look for a man discerning and wise. Now, you search throughout the Bible, you're going to see when it comes to leadership, uh, the kind of leaders God wants, th- this, is, this is typical. Leaders must be people who are discerning and wise. That's how they should be. What good is a leader who lacks discernment and wisdom? Uh, that person will help no one. That's why you you see this in Proverbs again and again, how important the book of Proverbs is, talking about wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. Wisdom is the most important thing. Wisdom is better than gold and silver. It goes on and on. How we need God's wisdom, how we need it to minister to people that we're with in our church, our family, our friends, strangers. I'm talking about God's wisdom now, not the wisdom of the world. What's interesting to me about this statement Go look for a man wise and discerning. Is that Pharaoh already has people in his cabinet, his staff, who are called what? In verse 8, they're called wise men. You have wise men there, but Joseph says, Let Pharaoh look for a man or seek out a man who has the wisdom needed to do this particular job. So, in Joseph's view, there are no presently, there, there are not presently in Pharaoh's palace or on his staff. Men who are wise enough to do this particular job. Look, He says, Pharaoh must look for this type of man until he finds him. You don't have it right here, Pharaoh, he says subtly. Now, this is a brilliant plan. You have, again, Joseph's plan. You have a project manager. You have a supervisor underneath him storing up food for him. While, there's year, while there are years of plenty, while there's crops, it's reminded me of the ant in Proverbs 6 who has, it says, who has no guide, overseer, no boss, uh, makes the hay while the sun is shining, right? Just stores up for the future, gets the job done while there's plenty. Then then here, the stored food is to be placed under several cities in Egypt for easy distribution throughout the land. So you have these store cities. And you'd better guard it, because what happens when people are hungry? They also become desperate, right? Desperate people. You read through the Old Testament, and you'll see different parts where uh, cities were being besieged, like Jerusalem. And what happens inside when the food supply goes down to nothing? They resort to cannibalism, oftentimes. People become desperate. As Sandy has always said, a hungry man is a desperate man. Now, I don't know where she got that idea from. <laughs> but she said, she's always said that again and again. She still says that to this day. I'm, I don't understand. Is that a proverb? Or? <sighs> but if you don't guard the sore cities... People are going to loot the store cities. Joseph knows this. The people are desperate when they're hungry. Of all the people in the world, the Lord's people, should be the ones who are, are available to give sound biblical counsel to people. They're the ones, hey, if, if they don't, if we can't give biblical counsel to people, who's going to do this if we don't do it? We should, our counsel should be biblical. And by the way, biblical counsel is also practical counsel. Joseph shows that here. And so, Joseph gives advice to Pharaoh. And then he's appointed by Pharaoh. Verse 37, he's appointed by Pharaoh. This is We're talking about his exaltation. Here's how it, went, it came about. He advises Pharaoh. Now his appointment. Look, look at verse 37. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh, to all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, or uh, some would say, Make way. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. How will Pharaoh respond to this advice he didn't ask for? You know, kings are touchy, very touchy people. You do, you know, you do what they say. Uh, and so how will he respond? Verse 37, the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh. And not only him, but to all his servants. And when's the last time the Pharaoh of Egypt asked a, a young Hebrew uh, slave slash prisoner for advice? And gets the best advice he's ever heard in his entire life. But it's quite clear to everyone at Pharaoh's court that this is good counsel. This is wise counsel. Pharaoh doesn't even question it. You know, whenever people listen to the messenger of God, and when they listen to... What God says when they listen to God's messenger and they take heed to what he says, they, they will be on the path of blessing. It's when they refuse. How many people have you talked to about the gospel, about the word of God, and they barely listen to you, didn't care, whatever, and they turn aside? It's when they refuse to listen that disaster strikes. What if this Pharaoh had not listened to this counsel from this godly man, Joseph? What if he hadn't listened to him? The same thing that would have ha- that happened to the other pharaoh later on under Moses, disaster strikes from him. That's a serious thing, to take heed to God's message. This pharaoh, fortunately, does take heed. He even asked the question in verse 38, can we find a man like this? What kind of man you're talking about, Joseph? Is there such a man as this, in whom is a divine spirit, or you could say, in whom is a spirit of God, or this is the spirit of God? Now... Does Pharaoh understand the doctrine of pneumatology? Is he teaching systematic theology here? Uh, The doctrine of pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Is is that what's happening here? Does he understand it? I've I've actually read some people who said that, yeah, he understood it. I don't think so. He's a polytheist, worshiper of many gods. He's not attempting to sound like a biblical scholar. That's not his point. He just realizes that all the things that Joseph has told him about God, all these statements he said in the, in, the, in the previous verses about God, and the interpretation that he gives and says this is God's, what God has said his interpretation is, he realizes there's something different about this guy, totally different. In fact, he obviously is possessed of a divine spirit. It's pretty obvious. And then the follow-up thought, verse 39, he says, look at this, verse 39. Pharaoh says, since God has informed you of all this, There is no one so discerning and wise as you are. This is amazing testimony. The Pharaoh of Egypt, a polytheist, a guy who worships the whole land worships tons of gods. He says, it's God that told you this information. Now, he knows. Pharaoh knows, good and well, where Joseph got his information. How do we know that? Read the previous verses. Four times, Joseph says, it's God who gave us this information. It's God who knows how to, I don't have, I can't do this. It's God who does this. He gives the information. And Pharaoh draws a conclusion that since Joseph has received this revelation from God, he must be the most discerning and wise man around. Now, now we're not talking about the smartest guy in the kingdom. People, they, they, they equate wisdom with intelligence a lot of times. Both There's a relationship, yes, or intellect, I should say. He's not, we're not talking about the smartest guy in the kingdom. We're not talking about the most intellectual guy. We're not talking about the guy with the highest grade point average in Egypt. We're talking about the most discerning and wise person around. And Joseph is that man because why? He's possessed of God's wisdom. He's possessed with God's discernment. That's what God wants. He wants his people to be people who are wise and discerning. That's what he's looking for. Pharaoh observed what Potiphar observed. And he observed what the prisoners in, in, uh, where Joseph was in jail observed. They observed, all of these people observed the same thing. The Lord is with Joseph. It's a consistent thing all throughout his life. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph, he says, I want you to be second in command. That's amazing. Second in command to this Hebrew guy, young guy. Joseph will now basically function in the role of prime minister, with the king only answering to the king himself. No one above him. Now, many scholars believe that Joseph played a role of what they call the vizier, that's the word they use, vizier. What is that? That was the great supervisor of all of Egypt, having all government authorities under his control. That's, this is astounding. Joseph rises from prison to the second highest position in the Egyptian government. Absolutely amazing. Look at the description given by Pharaoh as to how much authority he's investing in Joseph. This is a ton of authority. Verse 40, Joseph, you shall be over my house. Possibly the administrator of the royal palace, even. According to your command, verse 40, all my people shall do homage. In other words, people are going to submit to Joseph's leadership. Totally submit to it. No question about it. Pharaoh has said that's going to happen. Verse 41 Joseph has been set over all the land of Egypt, all of it. The only part of it, the, the only person to answer to, uh, for Joseph has to answer to, is the Pharaoh himself. And then Pharaoh, Gives Joseph, places upon Joseph the symbols of his new authority, his royal authority. Look at verse 42. He gives him, he puts, he places his own signet ring on his on Joseph's finger. That signet ring, very important. It had the name of Pharaoh engraved in hieroglyphics on that ring, or his or his uh, symbol at least. And he would use that that seal on his ring to seal the documents to authorize them important documents in the land of Egypt, he would use that to seal, to authorize them and say, yes, I permit this to to happen, this policy. Now Joseph could do that with the very ring Pharaoh had. He had the authority to use his ring to seal documents. And then he's clothed, verse 42, with garments of fine linen. That's the type of clothing Egyptian officials wore in in Pharaoh's court. Again, a reference to Joseph's clothing. Remember this? Joseph had the robe of many colors. And then later on, his robe was grabbed by Potiphar's wife. And then he goes to prison where he has prison garments. And then he has to change the garments before he comes into Pharaoh's court. And now he has garments fit for the royal palace. And then thirdly, he gets this gold necklace. The gold necklace is placed around his neck. Very valuable gold necklace, by the way. And there's several paintings in Egypt, uh, from Egypt, showing Pharaoh placing a gold neck around people's neck that he wants to honor. And he's honoring, rewarding Joseph here uh, with all these symbols of his new royal authority, one honor after another. Verse 43, he gets to ride in Pharaoh's second chariot. First chariot, obviously reserved for, for Pharaoh himself, uh, who's first in command. But to ride in the second chariot, that's the second greatest honor in the kingdom of Egypt. It's like, in fact, it's been likened to, you know, how we have dignitaries come and They ride limousines, and we have the secret service in front of them to protect them, to run ahead of them, and so on. It's been likened to to these guys that are are in verse 43 have been likened to the secret service. They're running before Joseph. And what are they saying? They're proclaiming, bow the knee. Pharaoh makes makes sure everyone knows that Joseph has been elevated. He's been exalted to this position of authority, and, and he has power, unbelievable power. Pharaoh grants him this authority. Verse 44, It says, without your permission, no one will raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's a way of saying any activity undertaken in in the land of Egypt is going to be, must be approved by Joseph. That's just wild. Pharaoh uses, in verse 44, Pharaoh uses the same term uh, that was used in verse 16. In verse 16, Pharaoh says, I want you to interpret my dreams. I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph said, it's not in me. See where the, in verse 16 where it says, it's not in me? Uh, God will grant the interpretation. When it says, it's not in me, the literal meaning is, it's apart from me. And so he's saying, uh, he said to Pharaoh, in and in the interpretation of those dreams, it's apart from me. I can't do it. In other words, it's somebody, it's, it's coming from another source, namely God. Now in verse 44, Pharaoh seizes upon that same term, and he says this to Joseph, apart from you, it's translated without your permission in Nazbi. Apart from you, no one has authority to do anything. And we're not talking about authority over a city in Egypt or a region of Egypt. We're talking about, what does verse 44 say? All the land of Egypt. That's how far his authority extends. Psalm 105.21 says, Pharaoh made Joseph lord of his house and rule over all his possessions. It's Amazing. This is the rise that Joseph has, has come to now. But Pharaoh is not yet done with honoring Joseph. Look at verse 45. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphnath paneah and he gave him Osnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of pl- plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it for it was beyond measure. A ton of uh, stored grain. He's not done honoring Joseph. He gives him a new name, zaphnath paneah As to what it means, we can only guess. Some people say it means God speaks and he lives. And then another crowd comes along and they say, no, that's not what it means. It means the God said he will live. And then they argue and nobody knows what it means. Nobody knows what it means. But we know this. The name is Egyptian, clearly. If you recall Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when he's captured and he goes to Babylon, what happens? He's given a new name, Belteshazzar, a Babylonian name. The idea in both those cases of Daniel and Joseph is that he's being assimilated. Joseph is being assimilated into the culture of Egypt. But even though... He's given an Egyptian name. Notice that after that, this name, he, the Bible continues to use the name Joseph again and again. Pharaoh even says it later on in the chapter. Not only given a new name because of this assimilation process, he's also given a wife. Her name is Osnath, definitely Egyptian. And that name means she who belongs to Nath. Now, Nath is, the, is a goddess, a goddess of many things. Nath, is the goddess of creation in the Egyptian religion, the goddess of war, uh, the mother goddess who invented birth, they say, and a goddess of many other things. So she is one of the big goddesses of Egypt. Uh, And Joseph's wife is named after her. Her father, Osnath's father, is a guy named Potiphar. His name means he whom Ray has given. Ray is not a guy in America, R.E. Ray is the sun god of Egypt. Uh, And so Potiphar is an Egyptian priest in a city called On. That city also is called Heliopolis, by the way. Potiphar is the head guy, the head priest. He he oversees the temple of On, or Heliopolis. He oversees the priests who are there. He oversees the festivals that are conducted to all the gods that take place. By the way, Heliopolis means Sun City. It's not the place near Ruskin with the golf carts. By the way, I advise you not to go to that area. I was almost run over by a golf cart over there. But the city of On, or Heliopolis, uh, was well-known, well-known, prestigious uh, religious center. It was the first place to, to dedicate a temple to the sun god, one of the raised one of the big gods in Egyptian religion, the sun god. This area today is known as Cairo. Maybe you've heard of that. Now, you see all this, and I, I know the question on your minds. We, we get to this verse where we're kind of stumped. Everything's going great. <laughs> Joseph is following God's purpose and God's working his life and raising him to this position. And then he marries this woman. And you ask the question, should Joseph have married this woman? This seems rather strange. I mean, she worships, uh, worships a false religion. She's named after a goddess of several things. Her, Joseph's father-in-law will be the main leader and, 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 and one of the main leaders in, in the religion, religion of the sun god and other gods. And whereas Joseph is a worshiper of the true god, the god that actually created the world, including the sun. How is this marriage going to work out? As to why Osnath was chosen by Pharaoh, this particular woman, my guess is, well, Joseph is a religious guy. I'll pair him up with a religious person in Egypt. This is a very religious family. I think that would make sense in his mind. And, by the way, the Egyptians would consider this a great honor. This is a great, Joseph's being honored in this context. He's given the ring. Uh, he's given the necklace. Uh, he's riding the second chariot. And now he, he gets a new name. And now he gets, here, here's your wife. I'm honoring you, Joseph. That's what's happening here. He's marrying into a prominent family in Egypt. This, this is a great honor as far as the Egyptians are concerned. But, but as to whether Joseph should have married this woman or not, the text says nothing. It's silent. This it sometimes is when you're uh, working your way to the scriptures. I certainly do not think this is God's ideal by any stretch of anybody's imaginations, based on what we've read already in Genesis, what we'll read later in the scripture. But the text says it only happened. And that's all it says. Now, I don't know. Think about this. I don't know what would have happened if he would have said no to Pharaoh, not marrying this woman. Pharaoh would have been, this is the Pharaoh of Egypt, would have been greatly offended that Joseph would turn down such an honor as far as he's concerned. Maybe he should have spoke up. I mean, he hasn't had that problem so far. He's he's told he's testified to Pharaoh. He's testified in the prison, testified in Potiphar's house. Everywhere he's been, he's testified of God. But nevertheless, they go through with the marriage. And that's what it says. I don't have an answer for you outside of that. I, I can say this, based on the rest of Genesis, Joseph never caved on his convictions. He never does. Uh, in verses 50 to 52, he has two children. We'll look at that uh, later. And he gives Hebrew names to them, not Egyptian names, even though Pharaoh's goal is to Egyptianize him, to assimilate him heavily into the culture of Egypt. Obviously, he's, he's going to look like an Egyptian, and is he going to walk like an Egyptian too? I don't know. I just, sorry. Throughout the rest of Genesis, Joseph is a consistent testimony to God. He is. He's always a consistent testimony. By the way, his wife does not turn his heart away like Solomon's wives did. He doesn't do that to him. Uh, Joseph doesn't even cave into the culture. He doesn't marry more than one wife, according to the record, just the one, Osnoth. Later later on, centuries later in the first century A.D., a novel was written entitled Joseph and Osnoth. Now, I know some of you in here are going to try to find this book. I don't know if it's available or not. In that novel, Osnoth becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. But that's just the wishful thinking of the novelist. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. We don't know what happened. We don't know if she ever became a worshiper of the Lord or not. It's possible, I guess. I think it would have been difficult. It's possible. This marriage, think about this. This marriage could very well have been a snare to Joseph. Right here, this point right here, all the great honors, all all the respect he's getting, this could have been what snared him. You remember Saul said, I'm going to give... Uh, my daughter to David to, to ensnare him, and I don't, Pharaoh wasn 't trying to ensnare David here he was trying to honor, or Joseph here he was trying to honor him, but it could have been a snare to him. In fact, it has been a snare to many who have married mates who are not godly, not believers, not followers of Christ, maybe steeped in a pagan religion, maybe atheist or whatever. i 've seen that happen too many times so I 've warned people about that, and they went ahead with it anyway. But I tell you what, I don't think Joseph would, I don't even think Joseph himself would recommend this kind of marriage. I don't think he would. Uh, And I don't know what his life was like, private life was like. But when the master of ceremony said, who giveth this woman away? Pharaoh said, I do. Verse 45 says, it was he who gave Osnath to Joseph in marriage. Pharaoh arranged the whole thing, kind of like, he's the first uh, P. Harmony, Mike. (laughs) Now, when did this exaltation take place? When did it take place for Joseph to be second in command? Verse 46. Look at verse 46. It happened when Joseph was how old? About, he was 30 years of age. Interestingly enough, that reminds us of someone else who began his ministry about the age of 30, and that was Jesus. Luke 3.23. Joseph has been in Egypt 13 years, and, and now at long last his dreams are being fulfilled His dreams that God gave him, that is, not his personal dreams. Although I'm sure he had, I am positive, he had no idea he's going to end up in Egypt, number one. And secondly, in Pharaoh's court, who would ever know that? But the verses tell us he travels throughout the length and breadth of the land of Egypt in order to supervise the collection of grain during the seven years of plenty. He makes sure all the designated store cities are filled up with grain so they can spread throughout the land of Egypt when the the, uh, famine hits. There's so much grain, verse 49 says. It's like what? Like the sand of the sea. That reminds us of the promise God made to Israel. I'll make you as numerous as the sand of the sea. And since the Lord fulfilled this first part of the promise, will fulfill this first part, part of the promise to Egypt to have uh, plentiful crops, there's no reason to believe he won't send a famine to fill the second part of the promise for seven years. And for that matter, there's no reason to think that he won't make Israel numerous as the sand of the sea. And for that matter, there's no reason to think he won't fulfill all his promises. That's what he does. To Joseph, this exaltation he received, such a high position in Egypt was not a cause for pride. Not at all. Not a cause for waiting around to be served by people of lesser positions. For him, it's a time to go to work. That's what he does. Time to be diligent, to do the job that he has to do. And as God's servant, Joseph is a man who always works as under the Lord. Now, how did he get to this point in life? How did he get here, this position? Well, we know it's God's will, number one. We know the Lord was with him, number two. And we know wherever, wherever Joseph goes, he always applies himself diligently to, to, to do the work set before him with all his might. Think of his past. You go back to his past, Genesis 37. He was an obedient son to his father. Secondly, he was a loyal steward to Potiphar. He's a responsible uh, supervisor in the prison. And now he is busy making sure that a nation of people will stay alive. That's Joseph. He's a wise, industrious, diligent, hard worker. Proverbs 22:29 29 states this, do you see a man skilled in his work? You see that guy skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And God has brought Joseph up to this position. You know, the Lord does not use lazy, irresponsible, excuse-making people to his work. He doesn't do that. Those whom God uses are like the workmen in 2 Timothy 2.15, who show themselves, work hard to show themselves approved unto God. That's who he uses. But the bottom line is it was God who brought about the exaltation of Joseph. It was due to his providence. Joseph didn't try to figure this out. He couldn't. It's impossible. He's stuck in prison. And then God exalts him. He exalted him, by the way. He exalted Joseph that why? That that, that Joseph might exalt the Lord, and Joseph might bless people, and he does that. So God's providence over Joseph's exaltation. And finally, God's providence over Joseph's adversity. His providence over Joseph's adversity in verses 50 to 52. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Osnoth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named, him, named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, typically in Genesis, the mother names the children, uh, usually based on circumstances that are surrounding the birth. You go back to Genesis 29 and 30, uh, and if, when you get a chance to read about Rachel and Leah, how they named one child after another, but here in Genesis 41, it's not Joseph's wife who names the children. I think Joseph says, no, I'm going to name the children. And Joseph steps up and names the sons. Joseph wanted names that honor the Lord, not Egyptian gods. By the way, there's a high probability, as I thought about this, that Joseph's Egyptian wife may have wanted Egyptian names for her sons. I can see that happening. And especially with her father as priest, I can even imagine Joseph's father-in-law saying, son... Name them, you know, after Ray or somebody like that. Can you see that happening? I can see that happening in the, in the family discussions. What are we going to name our sons? We're going to name him Hebrew names and honor God. That's why. That's what we're going to do. That's what Joseph says. That could have been very easy to compromise at this point. Very easy. Think about the possibility of Joseph compromising. He's been in Egypt for 13 years. He's grown accustomed to the ways of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh wants to Egyptianize him. He knows he's got to be into the egyptian culture to a degree to do his job and now is the second guy behind pharaoh if you thought about this as the second guy behind pharaoh joseph is in a position to compromise he really is some some might think he compromised on his marriage but i can tell you one thing he doesn't compromise on naming his children doesn't do that he's intent on taking this opportunity to glorify god so he gives his sons hebrew names not egyptian names he gives him names that honor the Lord. His firstborn son, Manasseh, meaning he who makes to forget. He who makes to forget. God made Joseph to forget. Now, we're often told in the Bible to remember things. Like, for example, uh, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Uh, beware that you don't forget the Lord your God. And it goes on and on like that. But here we're told that God made Joseph to forget. And what did he make him forget? Verse 51, two things. He said, God has made me forget all my trouble all my trouble. That word can have a variety of meanings, uh, each, but each, each is related to sorrow or trouble. And the word is typically used in connection with labor or toil, that, for that word. Joseph's toil as a slave, not a pleasant one. In fact, one Hebrew dictionary tells us the word trouble has to do with the unpleasant factors of work and toil. It relates to the dark side of labor, the grievous and unfulfilling aspects of work. Now, work is good, Work is good. Work is a blessing from God, but as a slave, not always fulfilling. And uh, I'm sure this is not the preferred career choice of Joseph to be a slave. The word translated trouble also found in Deuteronomy 26:7. That verse says this: It's describing the toil of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt later on, and it says this: The slaves cried out to God, and the Lord heard our voice, voice and saw our affliction. He saw the affliction of the slaves in Egypt. He saw our toil, there's the word, and he saw our oppression. Slavery with its toil and hardship, not a pleasant task. All this trouble Joseph went through. Think about all the trouble he went through in Potiphar's house, the prison, all this menial labor he had to do. God made him to forget the the unpleasant task part of it. That, That kind of forgetfulness is a blessing. It's actually a blessing. Now, I'm not saying he had a sour attitude toward his job. I'm not saying that. Uh, the Lord was with him, it says. The Lord made him to prosper. He was a great testimony. But I do not believe this was a cakewalk for Joseph. He suffered. We, I had Stephen read Psalm 105. Psalm 105, 18 says this. They afflicted Joseph's feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. That's not pleasant. In fact, it literally says his soul came into irons is what it says. His soul came into irons. One commentator says this. It was more than Joseph's flesh that felt the irons. His whole being came into its embrace. He felt it deeply within. Joseph felt the pain and agony of being a slave outwardly and inwardly. I mean, you can, you can imagine that would, that would be the case if you were locked up. If you were kidnapped and locked up and put into prison. prison, how would you feel? The same way in a foreign country. How long did this last? For how long? Well, it says in Psalm 105, this happened to Joseph until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. <clears throat> the word of the Lord tested Joseph. Joseph was being tested uh, in, in his adversity. Jo- the Lord, who's doing this? The Lord's testing him. Now, that, none of that sounds pleasant to me. But the Lord in his providence was refining Joseph Preparing Joseph for the great tasks that lay ahead for him. You know, that's that can happen to you. Sometimes the Lord may bring you into a time of trouble, a time of difficulty, a time of adversity, in order to refine you, in order to further conform us to the image of Christ. What good are we to anybody as nonconformists? I mean lacking in conformity to Christ. What good are we to anybody? And so, God made him forget all his trouble, verse 51. Secondly, God made him to forget all my father's household. All my father's household. I think he means the misery attached to, inflicted by his brothers. When Joseph thought back about it, all the misery inflicted upon him by his own family, memories of being thrown into the pit, memories of being threatened with death, memories of being sold into slavery by his own brothers. You know, that can never be erased from your memory permanently. Uh, There are things that happen in our past that can even traumatize us. Maybe you've been traumatized by some event in the past. But know this. God has put all this behind Joseph at this point. He's made him forget all this. He's caused him to make peace with his past afflictions. He's caused him to move on. What do we learn? The Lord is able to heal our past. He's able, whatever past you had, however difficult it was, the Lord can heal that. It's, what's sad is to have to say, God has made me forget all my father's household. That, that comes from a family bent on favoritism, jealousy, sibling rivalries. The family should be a place of love and honor. should be a place of fond memories, not a place you'd rather forget. And yet there are people who say, I'd rather forget what happened in the past in my family. But God can heal the troubled soul, even that which has caused That trouble caused by a family. Joseph names his firstborn son Manasseh, meaning God made him forget these things. The second son he names Ephraim. That has to do with bearing fruit or fruitfulness. Joseph now has sons. So he's bearing fruit in this sense, first of all. Like the Bible says in Genesis, bear fruit and multiply. And that's what's happening. They're having sons. He's also bearing fruit in that he is given a plan to go ahead with survival for the nation. Joseph is bearing fruit. Unto God, and unto the, the people, unto Pharaoh even. But look what Joseph, how Joseph refers to Egypt in verse 52. He calls it the land of my affliction. That's what he says. This is the land of my affliction. The last 13 years have been tough on Joseph. The Lord has been with him, yes, but he's come to understand what it means to be truly afflicted. He understands this. Joseph understands what it means to be truly afflicted. Verse 51, Joseph talks about his trouble. Verse 52, he talks about his affliction. This is a theme. Joseph knows all too well about. He knows what it is to suffer. And then in Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen preaching a sermon. And he says, and he he reviews the history of Israel, and he says in Acts 7.10, he says about Joseph, God rescued Joseph from all his afflictions, and he granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. God can do that. Only God can do that. He can turn the land of affliction into a place of fruitfulness. He can bring blessing out of trouble, and He did that for Joseph. Who does Joseph attribute all this turn of events to? To God. Through the years, Joseph has come to view—he's uh, come to view life through the lens of God's providence. You can see that in how he names his children. God has made me forget all this stuff. God's made me fruitful, and He's realizing. God's Bible brought me all through. It was God that did all this. And that's how I'm seeing life now. And I understand this now. And so that's how he sees it. The path the Lord takes us through may be one of difficulty, may not be one of our own choosing. He has reasons for that. There's things that you go through in your life and you wonder, why am I here? I didn't choose this. But maybe God chose that. That's what makes it so hard for us to grasp. We don't, we don't get it. Now, I didn't grow up hearing about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God in the churches I was in. Nobody talked about that very rarely, and I don't even think they knew what it was about. I certainly didn't know what it was about. I didn't grow up that way. Uh, So you know what? It's something I need to meditate on. It is. And maybe it's something you need to meditate on, too. But the Scripture teaches that God's providence reaches deep into our lives. That's what it says. I don't care what you grew up with, with what theology, that's what the Scripture says. So in this chapter, we've seen the Lord's providence over Pharaoh's dreams. His providence over Joseph's exaltation and his providence, yes, we may not understand this, but his providence over Joseph's adversity. He allowed him to go through times of adversity for years, not a little while, for years, difficulties, very difficult times, lied about, deceived, all kinds of things, and yet God allowed this. John Piper calls providence a wise and purposeful sovereignty. Now, I don't don't claim to understand everything there is to know about God's providence and all its outworking. I just know this. I know that God knows what He's doing. And it will be best if I simply trust Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're grateful for your word. Lord, we don't, so many things we don't understand about our own lives, about the circumstances that we deal with. We just pray, Lord, we will trust you. As uh, Peter said, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Pray we'll trust you with our lives, depend on you, follow you, and serve you as we'd be pleasing in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.